Hello and welcome back to the Troutman Pepper Battery Storage Podcast. In today's episode, we have the co-founder and chief executive officer of Bushveld Energy, Mr. Mikhail Nikomarov. He is the chief executive officer of Bushveld Energy. Welcome, Mikhail. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, excellent. Well, um, we've had a lot of different perspectives on the podcast uh, before. I know you've listened to at least one of the episodes. We've had a lot on for policy issues and then short duration, lithium ion. We've had at least one other on long duration storage. And the reason why I mention that is because I think your company is definitely in the space of the long duration storage and in particular as well um, dealing with vanadium. So um, I was wondering if you could give me a brief introduction of yourself and your company and then we can start the conversation talking about uh, vanadium and long duration storage. Sure, thanks. I can do that. Um, look, so about myself, I think you've uh, you started with that. So I run Bushfeld Energy. It's a it's a company I co-founded um, in 20, 2015, Although we started talking about the idea in twenty fourteen, um, Bushfeld Energy is the energy business of Bushfeld Minerals, which is a London listed vanadium minerals company. Um, we're an integrated company, which means that we, we do exploration for vanadium. We mine vanadium in South Africa. Um, we process vanadium into kind of higher value added vanadium products, uh, most of which go into the steel sector. That's where most of the vanadium is consumed. And so in, in 2014, the, the CEO of the group and I started to, to, to think about, you know, are there other uses of vanadium that, that we could look at? And um, we saw an emerging application in, in stationary storage, um, specifically in a technology called vanadium redux flow, uh, which is a type of flow battery. And so we, you know, pitched a, a concept to the board um, and we, we started the business in, in 2015, formally actually launched in 2016. And, and right now there's basically three verticals underneath business. One is around electrolytes, where we're building a manufacturing plant in South Africa to make the electrolyte, which is the most expensive component in the battery. It's a liquid electrolyte. Um, we've got a vanadium rental product that we rolled out um, about a year a year ago um, to, and I think that that's also something you've discussed before. We've also made investments into a number of battery companies. So we ourselves do not have a battery. So unlike some others, we've, we've actually taken an approach where we work with the industry um, we've invested in a, in a Canadian company that then merged with a UK company and they, they formed Infinity Energy. Um, and we've made another recent investment into a company in Austria called, um, called CellCube. Um, and then we also have a project development team. So we've got actually a team that looks at developing projects, you know, similar to what you'd hear from like solar developers or wind developers. But the difference is we look at it as to, you know, where does a project actually need storage um, to either you know meet a specific need, or 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 actually couple together with renewable energy. That's kind of a different spin on it. Um, at the moment, that's you know I think that the understanding of storage is a bit more limited. So that allows us to kind of play in a, in a market that is not as saturated as the the solar and wind developers. Just one thing, uh, two things I also mention is that that's my private sector hat. I've got a couple of non-private sector hats as well, which I think is is helpful as context. So I. I also chair the South Africa Energy Storage Association, um, and uh, that's a nonprofit association. 
And then I also chaired the Energy Storage Committee of Banatech, which was the global uh, association of Canadian producers. And I think you actually had one of you, one of those members of Banatech um, on the, on a podcast a few weeks ago as well. So that that was exciting to hear. No, that's that's, that's great to hear. And um, yes, we we had your 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 colleague at, at another vanadium producer and battery company, Paolo Misk. So um, good to good to have another member of Vanatech on as well. And yes, I kind of breezed over your introduction, so I appreciate you going into detail um, and and also mentioning the Energy Storage Association for South Africa. Um, and, and talking about your company's model, which is actually a little bit different than the other company that we had on, um, you know, the, there's certain things I think that are in common with the vanadium rental product uh, model, maybe. Um, but it is interesting that you, are, in terms of the actual batteries, you make investments in, in battery companies, and it sounds like you sort of partner with them. Um, and then you've got, like you said, a project development team. So in terms of your project development team, and, and it's obviously you've done a lot of thinking um, on the long duration issues and how vanadium um, batteries, uh, flow batteries can, can play in this space. What, what do you see coming down the pike in the United States? And I guess by that I mean, you know, you, you've seen now, um, like California, for instance, went out with um, a procurement where they mentioned the need for long duration products. Um, and there's obviously a lot of RFPs that come out around the United States. A lot of them have been focused on whether they'll just say solar plus storage um, or renewables plus storage, but they don't get as granular mentioning the difference between short duration and long, or they don't specify lithium ion versus something else. Do you, what do you see coming in terms of procurement efforts, um, RFPs, for resources and the like, um, and obviously the market that I'm in is the United States, but feel free to discuss other markets as well. Well, I mean, I think the U.S. market is very important. It is actually where storage, storage's participation in the market, in the in the power sector kind of started, and, and it wasn't by accident, right? This was something that the, that the, um, the Department of Energy intentionally prioritized, um, and I think it was uh, in 2008 that they actually first started to help write some rules, and it was probably in the PJM market, um, where, where storage could participate more in the, in the frequency control and short duration. And a lot of those rules were written with the technology that was available at the time, which was the emerging kind of lithium, lithium and to some degree lead acid um, batteries that could play in that, and, and then that spread to, to, to um, Queso in California. And, you know, if you think about the trend, I think the trend over the past clearly five years, or probably even longer than that, has been moving from shorter duration to longer duration. Um, the, the most obvious application that I think enabled that was the ability of storage to bid into capacity markets. So all of a sudden, you weren't just bidding on a five or a 10 or 15 minute window, you, you could actually bid on a, on, a, on a much longer window that was traditionally occupied by gas. And you know the great thing about storage is if you've got the duration, you can cover both what a peaker plant, a gas peaker plant will do, and also what it can't do, which is very quick um, ramp up and ramp down, which 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 is which is which is ideal. So so I think what you're then seeing is a, is a change in the duration of the average U.S. battery. Uh, and I think in 2016 it was something like two thirds of an hour. And then the, you know the most recent data I saw from uh, from the U.S. Energy Storage Association was around two hours. 
right? So two hours is the duration. That's on average, which means that there's still quite a few of those 15-minute, half-hour batteries and a lot more of the four-hour batteries. You know, the question is, do you stop at four hours, which is kind of, you know, I think a little bit of a sweet spot for where lithium kind of ends, or do you need longer? And, you know, our, our, our premise is that you need more longer duration than you need even the four hours. Um, and, you know, there's, there was a report out by NREL, which basically said that you need more, you know, most of what you need is actually about eight hours. You need some six hours and you need some four hours. So actually most of your, of, of your uh, stationary storage is going to be in that still daily cycling, right? But, but, but six to eight hours, definitely some four hours. The stuff that is short duration is, is a very small percentage of the market, probably in the long term about 7%, something like that, not more. So you really need four-hour systems, six-hour systems, eight-hour systems, possibly some 10-hour systems, and that's for your daily uh, cycling. On top of that, you also actually need some, some, some weekly storage and then some seasonal storage, which you know, batteries are probably not well-positioned to provide just because it's, it's kind of an inefficient use of the tech. But that's how I, I think the market is, um, is evolving, and you know, that does bode well for companies in the long-duration tech. That's Great, great to run through all that. And, you know, I, I have mentioned before on the program that I, I was involved with a complaint involving MISO where we, we challenged MISO's market rules. And long story short, we, we got Order 841 that I think came, grew out of that. And Order 841 is the FERC order where they, they talk about how you have to have a storage partic market participation model, um, which goes to the energy market, but on the capacity side, um, you know, the, the, the Order 841 says, look, you have to make the market rules such that um, the storage can participate in all the markets that, it, that it, it can technically qualify for. On the capacity side, the way that's playing out, and that's an important piece that you mentioned, MISO, for instance, has a four-hour rule that if you can provide energy for four hours at the peak, you can qualify for capacity. Um, PJM was at a 10-hour rule. Um, but that I think there's a movement to change that to make it shorter. But um, you know, to pardon the pun, but the long and the short of it is that I think those capacity accreditation rules are going to end up somewhere in that four-hour range, probably. Um, which is interesting because my understanding is that that's sort of at the outer edge of where lithium-ion would be. Um, but but kind of you know in the middle maybe for this sort of flow battery long duration systems. Um, but the flow battery long duration systems can go out as long as you know 10 plus hours. So um, I, I think it's interesting how that debate will play out. Um, I think on the in terms of the non-capacity energy products, you know, market rules are one thing in the RTOs, but you know. California, I, I think in one of the previous episodes, I mentioned that, you know, California, um, there was a trade press article where they talked about how curtailments are now down a little bit um, in terms of the renewables, and that's good news. And they accredited storage for helping with that curtailment issue. So I think you're going to see that picture improve. And maybe you could just talk for a minute about how long duration can really address that duck curve, the California, the so-called California duck curve issue, and other issues with how renewables ramp compared to the peak, and how, compared to the curve, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, 
So, so I think one of the great things about if you have a technology like, let's say, a vanadium redox load battery, right, that, that gives you the cost competitiveness for long duration, you can still use it for, for short duration applications, which are more power applications. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not that it's one or the other. Um, once you're able to do six hours and you're cost effective on six hours, nothing stops you from at other points in the day, you know, running just for 15 minutes. And, and actually, I want to come back to that point because there's another benefit of the tech that I think is a little bit underutilized because of how market rules are, are, are structured. Um, but the, you know, the big difference between a flow battery and more of solid batteries that we're used to, whether they're, you know, the alkaline batteries that we had in our flashlights when, when we were all younger before there was lithium ion or the, the lithium ion batteries in our phones and, and increasing electric vehicles is that those types of batteries, the power and the energy scale together. You know, I kind of use the, the analogy of a car where you have an engine which, which tells you how powerful the car is, how fast it can go, you know, how much torque, you know, a truck can generate. But it's the, it's the gas tank that determines how far you can actually get with the power that the engine produces. So it doesn't, if you want to go far, having a really powerful engine is not helpful. Um, you know, having a really large gas tank is really helpful. And in lithium-ion batteries, you, you increase the engine and you have to proportionally increase the, um, the gas tank. In a, in, a, in a flow battery, you don't have to do that. Literally, the tanks are separate from, from the engine. And so that means, that means it's cheaper because you don't have to have a bigger engine just because the only thing you care about is a, is a larger gas tank. So as a result, the technology becomes cheaper per megawatt hour or kilowatt hour as you go to longer duration. And certainly, there's nothing stopping one technology to be used for the application of the other, but it does come down to economics and, and what makes sense commercially, which is why when you only had one hour or half hour needs, you would not have used a flow battery, you know, outside of very specific applications, and we can come back to those. But as the need comes more and more for, for six hours, uh, eight hours, 10 hours, now all of a sudden it, it makes a lot of, it makes a lot of sense. So that's, that's really the key part around the, the technology. There are other benefits, that, you know, which I think you've discussed before. Um, uh, in terms of non-degradation, it's a completely reversible chemical reaction. So you don't have these little pathways that the that the ions create in a in a, in a solid um, in a solid battery. Um, in a liquid battery, those those pathways they just they just don't exist. So you you don't have degradation of the chemistry. Yes, the other components do are out. So there is a lifetime to the battery, but it's not the chemistry. So you can keep reusing the electrolyte almost to theoretically to infinity, um, or you can you can take the vanadium out and repurpose the vanadium for something else uh, if you for some reason can't reuse electrolyte. So that's a that's a big uh, a big advantage. Um, but the one that I think is not utilized enough is is this is this non non degradation because the other thing you can do with the technology is you have the use case you can cycle it a lot. So it can be a workhorse battery as well. Whereas lithium has a degradation, although, you know, in fairness, those technologies are also getting better. Um, but, but if you have a high cycling need, then there's an, there's an advantage there of also using a flow battery because you're not worried that you might have to use the battery three times rather than one time per day, which is great because you're not worried about your warranties. You're not worried about, you know, having to augment it in three years rather than in five or seven years. Um, so, so all of those things are pluses. But do you have enough use cases where you can actually cycle even, let's say, a four-hour battery multiple times per day? 
And unless you've got regulations that allow for capturing a lot of values by a storage system, you actually don't have that a lot of time. Um, in South Africa, for example, we used to have a dual peak. So we had a morning peak of demand and we had an evening peak of demand that's flattened out a little bit um, over the last few years. But that was a good application where you could have charged the battery in the morning and the sun comes up and that's you know, your peak generation from solar energy. Then the sun goes down and you again need storage. And then at night you've got, you know, what used to be called base load. Um, so, so there are those kind of applications, but really the better way is to have stack values from a system. And I have five or six values, some of which are daily usage, some of which might be once a week, and some of which, you know, when the system really needs it. Um, and if you can have a regulatory structure where I can generate from one battery or from one electron, five or six different value streams, then, then that's a that's that's a that, that's a very good case for flow batteries as well. Well, well, t talked about that a little bit because in terms of what the battery can do, because I think we've talked a lot about you know the need for long duration, and now you know you, as we mentioned, your colleague was on a, an earlier episode, he talked about it, but talk about using a flow battery, using a vanadium battery um, for a shorter duration usage, for instance like a regulation type of product or an instantaneous type of response, um, something like primary frequency response? Um, because I don't think we've talked about that yet in the context of these types of, of batteries. Well, there's nothing stopping the technology from being used for that, right? You have usually your, your kind of your rate of response is really, really driven by your, by your inverter. So you can respond within you know, milliseconds. Um, so that's not a that's not a problem. It's again, if that was if that's the only use case you're designing your project to be around, you would not put a flow battery in there because you'd you'd have a whole you know it'd either be really expensive because you're paying for the power and the power is more expensive, and and or you're putting in a lot of energy that you're not using, right? So ideally, I would have an installation that would that would play in both you know a frequency market and a capacity market, but I, I'd go beyond that. You know, I, I think one of the underutilized uses of storage is, is, is in the wires. So putting it in the transmission grid and in the distribution grid. Um, and there's, and, and this, is, this is where some of the challenges come in because those are usually different, different uh, entities that own those. <laughs> and there's usually different rules for how that's governed. And I've actually seen situations where you'll have, where, where there's a clear social benefit from putting in a, a battery you know, at the end of a long distribution line and rather than expanding the distribution line. Because again, a, a, a wire is just like, you know, for electricity is kind of like a highway for, uh, for cars, right? If you have the ability just for a few hours a day to somehow increase the capacity or to time shift when those cars go through the highway, you don't have to add an extra lane. And, and that's what a battery at the end of a transmission or distribution line allows you to do. So you could you could use it for for um, for your kind of energy shift, but you're not only shifting the the, the consumption, you're also you're also shifting the, the transmission of the energy by locating it closer to the consumption rather than closer to the generation. Um, but then you need market rules that that allow for for that value to be to be monetized. Um, and well, and I've seen situations where that doesn't that's not permitted, or you you have lawsuits between. <laughs> Well, um, the, the generation companies, the IPPs, and the and the and the transmission infrastructure operators, saying yeah. taking away our market. <laughs> well, well, you know that it's been a, it's been quite a debate in the United States, and in the United States, for instance, you know you've got 
first of all, you've got FERC um, saying that, uh, you know, putting out a policy statement and there have been some orders where they basically said, look, it's going to depend on it's going to depend on how the thing is being used. OK, um, it's going to be a, a functionality type of a test. It, it basically FERC has said, we're not saying that it can't be transmission. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to make the case for it. And then in the context of the RTO markets, California, MISO, PJM, et cetera, they basically said, look, if you sponsor a project that involves a battery, for instance, storage, and that storage product gets through the regional planning process as a transmission project, then great. We're, you know, they basically, I think, sent a signal that we're going to defer to the RTO planning process. But you're going to have to run that gauntlet. You're going to have to get through that regional planning process and make the case that your project performs a transmission function. And call it non-wires alternatives. MISO you know, had this storage as transmission only assets, the so-called SATOA, S-A-T-O-A, initiative. Um, and there was a FERC order that said that it that that could be okay <coughs> excuse me but basically um, you're right it's been a controversial debate in the United States and I, I think it comes down to being able to make the case that the the asset however you design it um, is is performing a truly transmission function um, so that that's and and I think from an investor perspective then you know, you're you're playing a different game from an investor perspective. At that point, you're playing a game that says, "Okay, I'm going to recover my investment plus a, re a return." Excuse me, on a fully regulated basis, and basically through a tariff at that point. So, you know, and and I guess from <laughs> I guess at least playing it out. I guess from where you're sitting as a as a company that makes batteries or partners with others to make to make batteries. Where you're sitting, that I think turns into maybe a build transfer type of arrangement where the company, the transmission owner contracts with you to build the battery, and I put air quotes around that, but to construct the battery and install it, and then you sell it to the transmission owner who then owns, who then, excuse me, earns a regulated return on it. Um, on a on a cost of service basis, but well, it would be... I, ideally, I, I want to get greedy though. I wanna I want to have the transmission benefit and get paid for that, as well as the ability to bid into the capacity market when I'm not performing a transmission function, and into the and into the frequency market when I'm not performing that function. Well, so <laughs> we, we, if I can, <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, it's a it's a cutting edge issue, uh, honestly, Mikhail, and we've. <laughs> We've done some work on that as as a firm. We've looked at that issue, um, basically from a from a regulator's perspective, it, it, and it is really a cutting edge issue. From a regulator's perspective, right? They look at that and they say, okay, we're going to let you recover the costs of this of this battery installation as part of the transmission system, which is a regulated part of the business. Meaning, you put in your cost of service. Um, and we let you, you create a revenue requirement that you can earn on. We, we build a rate off of that, and we charge customers that rate, and, and everybody's happy. That's a traditional regulation model, right, in the United States. Um, when it comes into market revenues, and in regulatory speak, sometimes they talk about 
incidental market revenues, right? So what you're saying is it performs a transmission function, but then when it's not performing a transmission function, it might be performing some other type of market, what we call a market function, making sales of energy, providing capacity, uh, ancillary services. We talked about frequency response regulation, et cetera. Um, yes, I mean, that, that's sort of like the win-win model. What, where you have to solve that is you have to say, you have to figure out some type of mechanism to avoid what the regulator in the United States would say is double recovery. In other words, you're, you're fully recovering the cost of the battery on the regulated transmission side, and then on top of that, you're making market revenues. Something has to give there. You can do revenue crediting um, or some other type of model, or, I mean, this is where I think people in my line of work come in, the, the regulatory lawyers. We could somehow come up with a way where we carve off um, a portion of the revenue requirement associated with the battery and say, okay, you, Bushfeld, you're going to take market risk and that you, you own that portion, however we divvy it up, um, and the transmission owner owns the rest and, and they add it to their revenue requirement and they earn on it. Um, but it's, that's one, put it this way, I don't think anyone solved that one yet. <laughs> Well, so most of the countries in in Africa do not have not unbundled. You know, Nigeria and Kenya being some some exceptions to that. There's a process of doing that, uh, and South Africa is actually following that process right now. But the benefits of having not unbundled, which is considered a more archaic system, which is why a lot of a lot of um, we would say developed economies have already gone through that process, um, whether it was in the in the in the in the 90s or or in the 2000s or sometimes in the 80s, and then regulation kind of also sometimes um, follows that the, the benefits of being bundled is that your you know your distribution your transmission your generation can you know they're, they're combined so you don't really don't have to figure out you know you have to internally kind of account for these but right. your job is to manage the system and you're you're you just kind of go to the regulator once <laughs> and then you tell them this is this is what my total costs were you know, as long as you've done your internal kind of uh, business cases correctly, the benefit you have is you don't have to kind of defend um, each each little piece of what of where the battery adds value. Um, but I hear what you're saying in terms of you know a, a regulator in in a in a, in a uh, unbundled uh, market will want to avoid you know giving a developer or owner of a system kind of the ability to double dip. But think of it also from the consumer perspective, right? Right now, as a consumer, I have to pay twice. I have to pay once for the stability of the of, of the of the of the grid, and I have to pay extra for the the time shifting of the energy to avoid curtailment and all of that. So there's probably something in the middle where you know probably the developer gets a little bit more than they would have just by deploying you know uh, as, a, as a as a as a transmission asset or only by a um, you know a capacity or an ancillary service support asset. Uh, but at the same time, the consumer is going to gain because the, you know the utilities they don't have to they don't have to double up on assets. And 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 right. and I think this is where storage I think is creating a new landscape where regulation needs to keep up and realize just that the possibilities are greater than they were before. And and I'm I think that 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 realization is is happening, but it's not there yet. That we need to think about things different. You know, people still talk about things like. Uh, base load versus versus uh, you know peaking capacity, which which is really not the way to think about a 21st 
century system. Those are 20th century terminologies, right? Baseload, uh, peaking, mid-merit. You know, the, the 21st century is, is, is thinking about things very differently. You know, it's around distributed, distributed generation. Um, and, and this is the benefit of storage is it can, it can, it can keep that energy distributed. You may not even need to, you know, wheel that energy from, from, um, from where it's produced, or you could wheel it at different times, you know, and, and, and move it around. So the role of the network actually changes. And this is where regulation needs to also also change and adapt. And I've, I've I think that the technology is changing faster than the regulations are, yes. yeah, uh, which may not have always been the case. What what you're saying, what you're saying, we've been saying for a couple of years now is that the the technology is changing much faster than the the tariffs and the underlying regulatory constructs. Um, and it, and I think there's recognition in the United States and that that we need to make some changes. Order 841 was a good first step, but I think there's a lot more coming. What I would say, by the way, with respect to unbundling and dealing with the issue of the, the business model that, that you spun out, which is, again, I think is a cutting edge model, and we've done some thinking on that, and we have some ideas on how you could solve that. But the, the thing is, it almost it's easier, ironically enough, if you've got a vertically integrated entity as opposed to an unbundled one where the transmission is owned by by someone else. I think in you know one of the sort of tried and true ways in the United States that you could possibly handle a situation and again this is a conversation and not legal advice necessarily <laughs> but <laughs> got to throw that disclaimer in um but we'll we'll put one in at the end as well. But I think there's the concept of revenue crediting um in in the United States regulation where Say another example, taking it out of the storage space would be if you own a transmission system, but you also make money off of renting your towers to to sell uh, cell phone companies. So in other words, tower rentals. That incidental money that comes in is traditionally revenue credited um, against your transmission revenue requirement. And so your transmission customers essentially get a discount for whatever that money is that you made on this other incidental business. That would be the same concept here where you would say, listen, the main function for this asset is transmission. Um, yeah. So if it, you know, if it costs $10 million, you'd get that added to your, your rate base. Um, but then if there, were, if there were market revenues, there was money that came in each year from selling regulation, providing regulation or selling energy, um, that whatever market revenue you came in would have to get credited against your transmission cost of service. I mean, that's the basic idea. But I think that works best, as you, as you mentioned, when you have a vertically integrated entity. If you've got an unbundled entity, then I'm not sure how that works, because you've got two different corporate entities. Um, and the transmission company is not going to be much interested in offering a revenue credit for something that where it's not getting the revenue. So... <laughs> So, uh, but I think it's an interesting issue, and and hopefully um, companies will will want to hire people like like me and my firm to um, to figure it out because I because I I think there has to be an answer there somewhere. So, um, yeah, I I think you know one of the things we talked a lot about are markets, um, and I I think it's fascinating to get your perspective, um, you know where you're operating in South Africa, in the continent of Africa. I mean, what is your perspective on, you know, from the, from the, from the company that's making the battery, selling in the market, 
what's your what's your perspective on sort of contracted for revenues versus market revenues because that's a big like paradigm those are two different paradigms in in a, in a way um in the United States and a lot of times companies like traditional IPPs I think get comfortable with one or the other and some companies obviously play in both but I, I just wanted to get your perspective on that well I mean the the, the beauty is <laughs> Uh, in, in basically nearly every single African jurisdiction, you, you, all, all, all of your contract, all of your kind of revenue is contracted, almost all of it, because you, you basically, the, the structure there is you have these power purchase agreements um, and the energy that you sell is contracted for. So there's no variability. So even if you're a private particip participant in the, in the market, you basically have a long-term offtake from the utility or from a specific customer, because you can also sell to to private individual pri private companies as as well. And so you sign usually a twenty year uh, power purchase agreement. And the only risk you might take is what might be the you know the market price for electricity, because it's possible that will evolve over time. But but even there, if it's a, if these are very large um, capital projects, you'll actually have to have that kind of pre agreed to as well. So actually, it creates a lot of risk because you know. Traditionally, your costs kind of in most sectors always go up a little bit, at least at, at least at the rate of inflation. So even if your inflation is very low, it's at least always going up or staying the same. Right. In renewable with renewable energy, that's not happening in the power sector. Right. In developed economies, we're actually seeing a, a decrease in in electricity consumption. Although you know, with electric vehicles, that might get that trend might get reversed a bit. Um, but we're also seeing cost decreases because you know what you're pricing solar energy at. Is a whole lot cheaper than than the nuclear, at least new nuclear, um, than coal, than gas. Uh, and if it isn't yet, it will be in one or two years in almost every single jurisdiction. So you actually have a scenario where, in five or ten years, once some of these more expensive assets have been amortized, the cost of electricity will start coming down. But now I've signed a twenty-year offtake. What am I going to, you know? And I'm stuck with it. So there's a good chance that in ten years or so, people will be stuck paying more for the energy than, than they could get if they, they generate themselves. But again, you, you know, you got the time uh, risk of, of moving later. And, and if there's decarbonization involved, you might, you might move sooner. But we, you know, we, we don't really have that issue on the continent because very small amount of energy is actually traded. Um, and when it is traded, it's traded between, between kind of utilities in the different countries through the, through the power pools. So it's, um, you know, from that point of view, it's still a very, uh, you know, much more regulated market um, without as much flexibility. But it is changing. Um, you know, it, 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 these are things that are changing, but it's interesting to see how how the business model and the new technologies impact, um, you know, those types of markets differently than they do markets that are more like the U.S. or like Germany. Um, where 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 you've got a lot more uncertainty based upon what the prevailing you know supply and demand balance is. Well, it, really interesting to hear you hear you talk about the contracting regime, and I unfortunately in certain respects, unfortunately, I've seen that movie before. And by that, I mean you know you've got this question of you were talking about say the cost of energy today versus what it's going to be two years, and then you've got a contract that runs for fifteen more years. And did I peg that right? Um, you know, that's an issue that's been around for a long time. In, in, I, I started my career in the New York Public Service Commission in the late 90s, but the people who had been there for a long time told me all the war, the war stories, so to speak, of when, when the 
PURPA, and I don't know how familiar you are with PURPA, but the, the law in the United States, Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act of 1978, which created a mandatory purchase obligation essentially for small, you know, small renewable projects, cogen, other, other technologies, emerging technologies at that time. The, that's a that's a concept that we could probably do a whole a different podcast on. But the the point of <laughs> the point of it is it's it's interesting history. The point of it is though is it was trying to jumpstart the industry of alternative energy producers because if you go back to the 70s in the United States, obviously it was it was all vertically integrated. And so um, in any event, the point is that issue of setting the contract price correctly. Um, has been around for a long time because it, it came out in that era when the New York State regulators or New York State legislature actually passed the so-called six cent law, where they pegged the price, you know, per kilowatt hour or whatever it was at six cents, and that was wildly out of market, um, you know, shortly thereafter. And then the the state utilities ended up in all of these above market contracts and it caused massive financial problems for a number of the utilities in New York State. So the the issue of how you peg the contract price correctly has certainly been around for a long time and and that's always one of the pitfalls of a contracting regime. Um but at you know there's trade-offs, right? Because when you sign a 15-year deal or a 20-year deal or whatever it is, you have certainty in many respects. You know if, you, if, if you're the off-taker, I can rely on that supply. I have a contract for 15 years. Whatever the amount is, they've got to sell it to me. Um, and, and so there's always trade-offs. Um, the United States, we find ourselves, I think, um, a, foot, a foot in both worlds. We've got all these markets that have developed, these regional markets. But in large parts of the country, we don't have those regional centralized markets. You've still got kind of a bilateral contracting regime. Mm-hmm. Even in areas where you've, you have the so-called RTOs, you, you still have the ability to enter into bilateral agreements and self-schedule those agreements, um, you know, for the most part. The, the rules will, by each region will be a little bit different. Um, so it's, it's an interesting debate. I, I have friends in the IPP sector, and I have friends in the utility sector, and you know, it's a it's an ongoing debate about what what do I like to play in better? Do I like to play in the markets, the the pure markets, or do I like to play with the contracts? Um, and I just think if you're going to be in this business, you you probably in the United States, you should probably get comfortable with both because <laughs> they're both kind of here to stay. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, so. it's, I mean, I, I think it's also what are you good at, right? So if you've proven yourself to be good um, at one, then you know, and I, I would say that there might be some complexity. There's more complexity, maybe, in the you know something that is not contracted. Um, and if if you've proven that you're not good at it, I might actually stick to the simpler one and say, all right, well, you know, I might need to be a bit more competitive. I'm, I'm going to have probably less upside, but it's less risky, and I've proven myself to not be very good with the with the with the higher risk risk ones. Um, but if you have proven that that you've got you know you you've either done your modeling very well um, and you you know you've got the expertise. You know, a, a lot of it is is also based upon those kind of strengths. You know, where where do you have capabilities within your team? Um, you know, within your kind of modeling software. But but I think the the you know the, the insight for me is always that um, you you've got to know the market, you've got to know the landscape. And you know, we kind of always say that 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 regardless of whether you're working in Africa or in Australia or in the U.S., these are you know energy is highly regulated. You can call it deregulated, you can call it unbundled, but it still comes down to being extremely regulated. 
and 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 the regulations while they may appear you can do a lot more things you've, you've actually got to tick a lot more boxes and um and so it's not necessarily always easier uh even though you've got more options there's more optionality but i think it gets more complicated so the key is you know for any companies that are involved they, they got to actually know the regulatory environment and you know and it and it changes uh by borders and, and you know in the u.s sometimes within the same state they might have you know depending on which uh, ISO they're in, right? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, the state of Indiana, you've got you got some portion of Indiana that's in PJM, some that's in MISO, the Midwest ISO. So, abs absolutely. As an example, um, Illinois, same thing. Um, in any event, well, I feel like we dove into the markets and um, different use cases for for the batteries and all that. But tell me a little bit more about Bushveld and and where, are we going to hear? Are we going to hear from Bushveld here in the United States? Or are you guys going to become more active here? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, look on our on our uh, Vanadium piece. You know, the U.S. is actually a very big market for us. Um, we you know we we export a lot of uh, a lot of Vanadium um, ferro ferro Vanadium type products to the U.S. The U.S. does not have a lot of uh, Vanadium domestically. Um, and and so one way or another, it imports it, whether it's through through kind of you know uh, spent catalysts or through through ore, um, it, it's got to import it. So you know, I think I think our position is always South Africa has been a very good and reliable trading partner for for the U.S. And uh, you know, Bushfield's a listed company in London. Um, South Africa has very stringent mining requirements, which maybe a lot of other jurisdictions don't. So. Are, you know, it's always an important market market for us. Um, we we hope that the trade between the two countries remains very uh, very open and uh, and forthcoming. And, and I think there again, you know, if you think about where do a lot of other sources of vanadium come from, um, this is this is where I think where South Africa kind of stands apart. So for us, the U.S. market is is interesting from you know from an energy perspective. So you were talking about the projects in in California that were. Um, Specifically for long duration and excluded lithium. So one of the companies that, that we invested in, although we've, we've since divested our, our shareholding, um, and Invinity actually won some of those projects. I think they 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 were awarded somewhere between six and eight uh, megawatt hours in, in, in those California uh, projects. So that was that was quite interesting to see them be be successful. They've got an office out in um, um, in San Francisco, um, and they're kind of originally from 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 British Columbia. So I think that. You know, vanadium itself is is not really taken off as, sto as, as storage technology in the U.S. Um, China is by far the leader. You know, Japan has had quite a few large vanadium batteries, but the U.S. has been more more lithium focused. So I think that's a that's kind of both a challenge and an opportunity at the same time because it's not as you know it's it's something that's that's new. Um, I actually saw Sumitomo did a did a project that's the Japanese vanadium battery company in um, in, in in California. Um, so I, I think that it's 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 actually more of an opportunity, but but at the moment it's still you know it's it's not it's not something that is as prevalent in in this market as it is in uh, in East Asia. Um, and and again, part of it is I think that the U.S. does not have a lot of vanadium. So in China, which is half of the world's production of vanadium, they're like, well, you know, we don't have lithium. <laughs> you know, what what are, what are we going to do? We need to put our lithium into the electric vehicles. So. So, so that policy of, of using that for storage, uh, for stationary storage, made a lot of sense. Uh, and also their approach was they've had a lot of renewables. So they were trying to reduce clipping. As we learned, the U.S. market was more around, uh, it is starting out as kind of more short duration market. So I think it's a, it's a, 
it's an opportunity where, you know, we're not sure exactly how we will play into it, but definitely the companies that we've invested in are, 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 are playing into it. Um, Cellcube is quite aggressive uh, looking at the North America market. So it's going to be more through, 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 like I would say, indirect means um, that, that Bushfeld would be, would be looking at it. Um, but definitely it's a, it's, it's a big source of demand for us in terms of vanadium. And it's also where some of the companies that we've invested in um, are looking for opportunities on the energy side. I mean, my expertise, we've talked about the U.S., but I know more about the African landscape. So if, if all of a sudden I told my shareholders, hey, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go and, and do some bids in, uh, in Texas and, and in Florida, they, they might say, well, your accent is okay for that, but I don't think your expertise is. <laughs> well, we, we should probably, we, should, we have to do a, a follow-up follow episode, excuse me, on the African market because – uh, it sounds like there's a good story to tell there about the emerging opportunities, and we've and we've had some of the early podcast episodes. We talked about you know some of the some of the other bigger picture issues associated with storage. It, it, ha it hasn't always just been about the U.S. market, so that's that's something to think about us doing. Um, but I, I very much enjoyed our conversation. I, th I think we're coming towards the end of our time. Um, Definitely appreciate you being on the program. Um, fascinating story about your company. Um, and I, I can always get into this give and take about, well, how do we solve this, this regulatory issue? And so I, I appreciated the conversation very much. I, I don't know if there's anything you want to add before we wrap up about yourself, Bushfeld Energy, uh, Bushfeld Minerals, or, or really anything else. No, I mean, obviously, if people are interested, they can go on our, on our website, bushfeldminerals.com, bushfeldenergy.com, um, and uh, find, find out more. Um, yeah, if you want to talk about Africa at some point, I'll be, I'll be glad to, to come back and uh, discuss some of the opportunities there. Likewise, there's a lot of opportunities um, for U.S. companies and U.S. businesses. Power Africa is, has been quite active now through multiple um, uh, administration, so it's actually quite good that the that you know, despite the political changes, um, there there's kind of support for, um, for 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 developing the opportunities there, and there's a lot of demand for energy, and it's a it's, it's an exciting it's an exciting market and a, and a big growth market as well. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, sounds fantastic. Well, appreciate appreciate you taking the time to be on our program today. Enjoyed the conversation very much. And um, I think that's it for today. Thanks for listening to our podcast. And uh, like I said, we'll have to have you back, Mikhail. Thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it as well. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants and not Troutman Pepper or its clients. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties express or implied regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.